0: This morning we are down to one of our last two messages in our summer sermon series that we've called Who's on First? Knowing God by Name, where each week in this series we've been looking at another name or title that we see in the Bible for God. And through these names and titles we have seen how God demonstrates to us who he is, what he's like, what his character is what we can come to expect from him in a relationship with him, but also what then is expected of us in return. And each week along the way, we've had uh, another Who's on First trading card. So I hope you grabbed your trading card on the way in. If you didn't grab it, there's more in the Welcome Center. There's also the past. If you've missed any in the past and you want to fill out the set, you can grab some of those from the past. And really, all of those are a tool that you can have with you as a reminder day in and day out of who God is help you see other places in the Bible where you can see God as that name or that title, give you that opportunity to reflect on him and his presence in your particular real life situations between the weekends. And so I encourage you to grab those and take them with you. Well, this morning I wanna begin by telling you about the key for my car. Like many of you, my key is a you know, plastic fob where it has the buttons for the alarm and then coming out of the plastic is the metal part that you actually put into the ignition so that you can start your car. Well, over time, the plastic around that metal has disintegrated and to the point that the metal just popped out. And I remember when it happened, it actually happened quite a little while ago and I was trying to figure out what to do next and I I did what I think anyone else would do in this situation. I went and grabbed the other one because it came with two. And unfortunately, I had stuck the other one in the back in the drawer, didn't really do anything about it. And over time, the plastic on that one also disintegrated so that the metal popped out of that one also. And so now here I am with these two parts to two different keys trying to figure out what to do. And uh, of course, I decided I would just live with them separate for a little while because I looked into it. And frankly, it was just too expensive to replace. And I just didn't want to spend the money. So maybe it's just my Scottish heritage. I don't know. But anyway, I... I didn't replace them and so I had these two parts and I figured I would just let myself into the car using the fob and then I'd stick the metal part into the ignition and I'd be fine and off on my way well the first time I tried to do that I stuck the metal into the ignition nothing happened and I kept trying it and try and, not, and I just eventually had to walk away and I was like, great, now my car's broken. First my keys, now my car, nothing's working. And what I discovered actually later was that you have to have the metal part and the plastic part together or the car won't start. And maybe everybody in the room know, knew that and you're like, yeah, hello. Well, I didn't know that. And so I had to discover that on my own. And, and so I, I finally figured that out, I was able to get, get the car going. and, and the thing is, when you don't know how to use these parts, I mean, it was frustrating. It was confusing. They call it a key for a reason, right? It's key to get moving. And so my solution to this problem was I started duct taping them back together. (laughs) And unfortunately, even the duct tape started to break down and today I still have not had them replaced. I just hold the two pieces together. When I start the car, I throw the fob into the console and I drive on my way and I have to do this over and over and over. It gets particularly awkward when the little metal part falls in what I call the crack of no return between the seat and the console. You know what I'm talking about because there's been times where I've been in a parking lot and I'm trying to move my seat forward. My legs are dangling out and I'm trying to dig for my key but you know that's whatever. That's just a visual for you. But here's the thing. When you don't have both parts and you don't use them together, the car's useless, isn't it? You can't move forward. You can't get to where you're hoping to go. And I'm, I'm telling you this story because the name we're looking at this morning is that key. The title that we're looking at if you don't have all of the parts, if you don't hold these together, our lives can't really move forward the way God intended them to be and we're stuck. The title we're looking at is so central, it's actually central to the Christian faith and it is the, it's perhaps the significant point of departure between the Christian faith and every other faith and concept of who God is. With that, it also means that it's a significant point of offense, of confusion, of frustration. And so we're going to jump into this key, but know that it's, for you, you may take it for granted, but this is a central and difficult title to grab onto. And so we're going to jump into this in John chapter 1. I'm going to warn you, we're going to dive in deep with John here. We're going to read for a little bit, and so I'm just going to encourage you to stay with it. We're going to try to unpack it on the other side, but let's hear God's word speaking into our lives this morning. This is John chapter 1. You can follow along on the screen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you to hear from your word, I just want to acknowledge before you this passage is, is so full. And it's at times challenging and confusing. Lord, may you send your spirit to be moving among us to open our ears, our minds, our hearts, our souls, that we can hear and receive the truth. Lord, it's in the name of Jesus that we trust as we come to you in prayer. Amen. So this, this passage is truly loaded I mean it really is there was actually a very popular class at the University of Colorado it was a semester long class that was just on these 18 verses and so and it probably wasn't enough time to really cover it all and so that means this morning we're going to cover all of it and no, I'm just kidding we are not we are not We're not going to be able to get into all of it, so I'm just going to commend it to you to go and read it over and over and allow it to unfold the layers and layers of truth that are here. What we're going to try to do this morning is is look at the title, God the Son. And we're going to do a couple things. We're just going to affirm that Jesus the Christ is not just the Son of God, but is in fact God the Son. And we're going to ask the simple question, so what? And really, this has been a relevant issue from the very beginning of Jesus' life and ministry. There was a time when he gathered his disciples aside and he said, who do people say that I am? Because there were tons of opinions. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was John the Baptist. The same John that's the witness in this passage was executed. But some said this w- that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. There was confusion about who is Jesus. And Jesus pressed even harder on his disciples eventually and said, Yeah, what about you? Who do you say that I am? It continued to be a question after Jesus had died on that cross, as He and rose again, and then ascended into heaven, the, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, began to go out throughout the Roman Empire, and people from all sorts of backgrounds and worldviews were receiving, hearing this message, and trying to figure out who who is this Jesus? Who is he really? Man, God? And there was lots of debate and controversy. To the point where in the, in the 90s AD, John, the, not the Baptist, but John, the gospel writer, who wrote what we read this morning... This same John, who was one of those original disciples who had lived with Jesus for his years of ministry, who even among the disciples had a special and and deep connection and relationship with Jesus, he set out to try to set the record straight so that all folks with all these different worldviews could really understand. He tried to clarify who Jesus was really. But that didn't settle the argument. It only actually intensified in the 4th century after Christianity became really the, the religion of the Roman Empire. And there was what has become known as the Arian Controversy. And it's known that way because there was a teacher named Arius who would travel around through the church and he was denying the deity of Jesus. He was teaching that Jesus was not God but was instead a created being. And Now, he was was absolutely certain and was teaching that Jesus should be honored, revered, respected in the highest regard because he was what Arius described, the first of creation. And he was uniquely adopted as the son of God in a way that you and I could never be. He was elevating Jesus beyond our status but always below the status of God. He was teaching that Jesus was a creature, not God so the church hotly debated this issue and eventually formed a council that settled, or at least determined together, that Jesus was in fact fully God and fully man. This incredible mystery of both. But Jesus was in fact God. And so did this settle the issue? No. I mean, we, we know that just by looking around at our own day, don't we? Because this is still a huge question today. Is Jesus God? Every Christmas, every Easter, there are articles and there are supposed proofs that tell us how Jesus could not possibly have been God and he didn't even think he was God. At least so the articles say. And you get books like The Da Vinci Code written some years ago by Dan Brown that, that it's a fictional work and yet it claims that the church knew all along that Jesus was not divine and it's been this great cover up throughout all of these thousands of years. And, and so the controversy continues. Jehovah's Witnesses hold absolutely to Arius's view of Jesus that he is a created being. There's parts of the church in America that have historically stood in line with that council that had declared Jesus is fully God and fully man, but now are moving ever so slightly and at times very quickly toward Arius' view, saying that, yeah, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is an incredible guy, a wonderful teacher, and even an amazing and an expiring example of the fullness of human life, and we should follow after him, but he couldn't possibly be God. This is becoming more and more even within the supposed church in America, a teaching. And yet John is clear in what we've read. I understand the categories he uses, the imagery can be challenging, but when we dig in a little bit and we're going to we want to do that for the rest of our time this morning we can move beyond just a simple faith assertion that Jesus is God but actually equip ourselves with reasoning to hold on to this reasoning that comes out of the passage that we just read and it begins by looking at John's idea of the word right as he begins our passage right in the beginning he says in the beginning he's evoking all of the imagery of creation itself in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning well, the word-word is a Greek word, lagos. And this word has an incredible depth of meaning. It certainly did by Jesus' day. 600 years before Jesus even walked the earth, there were philosophers that had identified the lagos as the, the all-pervading reason. Or the Lagos the, were the rational principles that gave form to and govern the cosmos, the world, the universe that we live in. It had become, the Lagos had become known actually as the mind of God, the divine mind. This, it was foundational, the Lagos was foundational to the very reality that people lived in. There was also, that was a Greek background, and then there was a Hebrew background to this term, logos, to word, because it was the word of God. And and among the Jewish people, words have a power of their own, a power actually to create reality. If you think about the blessing stories that you find particularly throughout the, the book of Genesis, you can think to one in particular, the story where Jacob steals his older brother Esau's blessing. He goes in and he tricks his father Isaac into thinking that he's Esau and so Isaac puts his hands on him and blesses him, gives him the blessing that was due to the older son which was always much greater than the younger son. And Jacob leaves and eventually Esau comes in and Isaac realizes what has happened and Esau starts pleading with Isaac, father don't you have a blessing left for me? And see now for us reading that story we're like of course, words are just words. He can take them back. He didn't mean them for, for Jacob anyway, so why can't he just take them back, put his hands on Isaac, and then offer his blessing to, to Esau? I mean, because for the Jewish mindset, for the Hebrew people, it was impossible. Because that word of blessing that had gone out had a power to create a reality, it had created a blessing in Jacob's life that could not be revoked. The words were out, it was done. And so this was, the, this was what they thought of. Words have this power. And then they started connecting that to the reality of the word of the Lord having this incredible power to create reality. You think about the creation story itself. In Genesis 1, God spoke creation into being. He said each day, let there be, and that thing came into being because the word of the Lord has a power, has an agency, It is a creative force that makes the work of God actually happen. So you've got in the background of John's thinking and of the the people that he's writing to of both Greek and Hebrew backgrounds, this idea of logos, the word as the, the power and the agent by which creation itself came into being and the rational principles that actually give form and make our universe function in the way that we know it to function. It governs the universe. And so this was the Word. And we're told by John, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And as we read through the passage, we see, and when we connect all of the pronouns, we see that the Word is Him who is the Son, the only Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. The Word, the Son, Jesus are all the same. Now, in verse 1, we see see in our version a very straightforward declaration, don't we? We see that the Word was with God and the Word was God, and for us, we feel like that settles it. And I'm good with that, but there are some who are not. They make an argument from the Greek that's underlying this, from Greek grammar, that it's not the Word was God, it was actually could be interpreted the Word was a God, as in a lowercase g, a lesser God, a demigod, God-like, but not the almighty Yahweh, Jehovah, not the one who carries all of the titles and names that we have been learning and, and thinking through this summer. But here's the good news. You don't need to somehow win a Greek grammar argument to demonstrate from this passage that Jesus is in fact divine, that he is in fact the Son, is in fact God. You can use this passage, and particularly verse 3, to unpack that. Now, I understand already this morning, we're hitting a lot of very technical things today. And this is not always how we approach the Scripture, but we have to this morning in order to get all of these parts to put the key together and to understand the significance. And so, hang with me. Because I learned actually this a while ago. It was a guy named Greg Kukel, I found it actually on the internet at one point, he's from an organization called Stand to Reason, and it was originally couched as how you can use a napkin, and you can draw on a napkin to prove Jesus is truly God. And so what he says, he argues, is that the first thing that you have to do is that you have to establish that there is only one God, which actually is the easiest part of this, typically, Because many people, even those who are not followers of Jesus or who deny the fact that he's God, are quite content to say, yes, there is only one God. And certainly, the the major religions, many of them of the world who have atheism, declare that there is only one God. And so, we look at the scripture and we can easily find reference after reference that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. And so, we can... If we can establish simply that there is one God, now that all that means that's left is we have to establish that Jesus is in fact God. And if we zero in on verse 3, we can start to do that. Because verse 3 says this, through him, through the word, through the son, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Alright, so now I'm going to give you a napkin, okay? Okay. Here's your napkin. This is the first, I think we have a slide here that is our first napkin, is that right? There you go, there's your napkin. All right, it's unfolded nicely and you can see in the middle there's, that's where the crease is in the middle of your napkin, right, and so everything on this napkin is everything that exists. And so that means it contains everything that actually is. So imaginary things aren't on here, but we're not talking about imaginary things, we're talking about real life, so this is good. So this is everything that exists is on this napkin. If we go to the next slide, We have two fundamental categories. Everything that exists either never came into being or came into being. It either never came into being, meaning that it was there all along, that there was never a time before which that thing existed. And and so there's this other category where all the things that came into being. And we think about these categories, those things that never came into being, there's really only one thing, God. God is the one that never came into being. Even atheists who argue staunchly against God argue that everything else that we, we know, we see that ever was, ever is, and ever will be has come into existence. There was a point before the Big Bang where we don't know what was there. And so everything came into being. And so we can establish that, okay, if there was one who is, was, never came into being, that must be God. And so we go to the next slide. So on the other side, we have all things that came into being, which is everything else. All created things must have come into being. So we have God on one side, never came into being, everything else on the other side that came into being. All right, hang with me. The next slide. All those things on the right, all those things, verse 3 tells us that all of those things were created through him, through the Son, through Jesus, right? So everything on the right came through Jesus. We agree with that, according to verse three. And so we have the big box, everything that exists, we have these two fundamental categories, things that never came into being, things that came into being, and then we can agree that you can only be on one side or the other, right? Just wanna make sure. A thing was either, cre- either created or not created, right? A thing either came into being or didn't come into being. You can't be both. And a thing either existed before or it was created. All right. I know. I'm not trying to confuse. I'm just trying to review. And so here, because here's the question. So where does Jesus fit? Jesus exists, so he's got to be on the napkin somewhere. Where does Jesus fit? This is the controversy. The next slide, we're just asking ourselves that question: where does Jesus fit? So if he goes on the right side, on the side that all things came into being, here's the challenge: everything that came into being owes its existence to Jesus. He caused it all to happen. And so if Jesus is on the right side, if he caused everything to come into being, and jesus came into being then we have this weird thing where jesus actually created himself which that's kind of interesting but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense does it that jesus must have been there before created things happened he couldn't have created himself and so we can say jesus must be on the other side he must have existed before all things came into existence if he was the one through whom all things came into existence. And if there is only one God, God's the only one that never came into being, then Jesus must in fact be God because he never came into being. The Word could not have been created. The Word was the one through whom all things were created. And so, from verse three, we can hold on. It's not a grammar argument, it's either we start to believe that what John has told us, the one who walked with Jesus, has told us is true or it's not true. That he is either God or he's not. Even uh, sometimes it's argued that, well, Jesus didn't even think he was God. This is something that people, the church did after the fact. Well, when you get to John chapter 10, verse 30, you get this really simple statement that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's the entire verse. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so if Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God, is also God, the Son, so what? Because this, this morning is not just about being right. It's not just about having, having these, you know, this argument in your pocket to win. First, first thing that it means is that he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of honor, not the kind of honor that Arius wanted to give him. Not that, hey, yeah, we respect him highly and he's an inspiration and we want to do what he has done. But no, he is worthy of worship, of complete loyalty, of devotion, of awe, of wonder. He, as John in in chapter five, verse 23 says, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He's worthy of our worship, of our whole being. And so when we sing, to Jesus, when we pray to Jesus, the Son, we're praying to God, it is totally appropriate because he is worthy of our worship. Another thing that it means is that the Son was a part of the family business. He, he He is God, and so they share the same core purpose, they share the same desire, they share the same will, and so what that means is that The will of God, which is to restore all things, to make all things new, to fix this broken mess that we live in, was the same purpose, the same mission that Jesus, the Son, came to fulfill. I heard recently um, the Bible described as a book with, with bookends. You've got two chapters on the front end that are perfect and beautiful and great. You have this couple chapters on the back end that things are restored and new and wonderful and beautiful and perfect. And then you have everything in between and that's the life that we live in. It's that space between the times where we live in hardship and trial and suffering. Where we live in frustration and confusion. And what we're told in this passage that we've read is that God was not content to remain outside of that. He wasn't re- content to remain on the bookends outside of time because he, wasn't, he didn't come into being, so he kind of lives outside of time already, but he wasn't content to stay there because his desire was to restore all things, including the relationship that we have with, with God, that we were made to know him, to be known by him, to be loved by him. And so we have in verse 14, it said, The word, the Son, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God stepped out of his heavenly realm outside of time, entered into time in the Son, as a restoration mission to fix all that was broken. And the Father had sent him and he came full of this glory, this amazing glory that we see in the glory of, of the sun. is this, this life was in him, and this life was the light to all mankind. I mean, in other words, Jesus was a light that came to shine in the darkness. And man, don't we need a light in the darkness right now? I don't know about you, but the last weeks have just felt like this incredible cloud of darkness. 18 months has felt a bit like a cloud of darkness. We need a light that cannot be extinguished. And John has said that this light, the darkness, he entered into it and the darkness has not overcome it. See, if Jesus the Son was not God, he would have been crucified on that cross. He would have died and been buried and he would have remained in that tomb. But the darkness of injustice, the darkness of sin that crucified him on that cross was not enough to overcome him because in him ha- he had the divine, perfect, beautiful life and that life was the light of the world and that light could not be extinguished, could not be overcome. And so if death itself could not extinguish the light of the Son of God, then know that as you draw near to him, there is light to shine in your darkness. There is life and there is light for you. This is the glory of the Son, the Son that came full of grace and truth. I mean, I, I think that's an amazing and beautiful description, and I think the reality is that we often, I think, are either grace or truth people. I mean, just take this simple example. Take punctuality. So you're meeting with meeting someone or you're, you're with a group of people and you're all gathering together at a certain time. How do you feel if somebody rolls in 10 minutes late? I mean, if you're on the truth side of things, I mean, that's wrong, isn't it? How disrespectful. How could they not think that everybody else is busy and has other things to do that they could just waste our time? Now, you all are all very nice people and you don't say that out loud, but if you're a truth person, those are the things that are at least running through your head, aren't they? If you're a grace person or somebody who can't actually find themselves to be quite punctual. We're together. I'm hanging out over here with you guys. You might have a propensity on this particular issue to give grace. Like, oh, man, they must have, something must have come up. They were busy. Man, I'm just so glad they made it here, and they made it here safely. Thank you, God. And, and we tend on all things to be a truth person or a grace person. We can apply it to a lot more issues with a lot more significance. You know, we can be a, a, a grace and a truth person when it comes to issues of what? All the issues of morality. We can come to issues of sexuality, issues of, of alcohol, issues of pick, pick an issue, and we're going to be grace or truth people typically. And Jesus was wonderful because he wasn't either or. He is grace and truth together personified in the body. He wasn't choosing either or. So what that means is he says to those of us who are late, he says, you are late and that's not right. You've wasted all of our time. It's disrespectful. And we love you and we're so glad that you're here safely. See, he never at any point dismissed the sin dismissed the darkness dismissed the fact that those rejected him were headed down a path of destruction that was only going to lead them to death and he was constantly telling them knock it off it's not working that's only going to lead to your pain and suffering and death that's the truth and by the way everybody fit in that camp because he said it to those who, who were living you know, way out there, rejecting God just flat and outright, whatever he had said, and those who were living in hip, hypocrisy and self-righteousness as if you know, those truth people that are saying, hey, look how good I am. How, can, how come they can't get their stuff together? Jesus was saying to all of us, no, your way is not working. It's leading to your death. That's the truth. And and he came to enter into that human, the bookends, enter into our suffering, enter into our darkness so that he could take on the truth. He could take on the death that we deserve to die so that we could receive the grace of God. See, that's what love looks like. That Jesus loves us so much that he's not gonna pull the punch, he's gonna tell us what the truth is, but he is also going to take the truth onto himself because we can't bear it on our own. See, the Son of God has come to be a light that shines in the midst of your darkness. God himself, a light that could never be extinguished and to become, to take on our sin and our the truth of our destruction. And if he were not God, to take on the sin of all of us and the death that we all deserve, it would have crushed him completely and forever. But he is God. And so he was able to rise up from that death and he could offer you and me new life here and now, in the in-between, in the darkness of today, an abundant life that is filled with grace and peace and joy and hope, a life that in and of itself does not have to be consumed and overcome with the darkness. Jesus, the Christ, the Word, is not just a son of God, but is the Son, God the Son, who came and took on flesh so that we could be saved and we could have life. That's the key. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound truth that it was your will to restore all things. Jesus the Son We praise you and we honor you for being willing and obedient, submissive to the will of the Father. Your desire to bring us back, to restore us to you. Your willingness to take on the truth of our destruction, our sin, our self righteousness, and to receive in its place your grace, your light, your life. Lord, may you allow us to hold the pieces together, this truth of God the Son so that we can hold on to his light in the midst of the darkness that we would not be overcome and we could shine and point a light on you. In Jesus' name, amen.